Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and thank you for joining me on this much warmer, brighter Tuesday morning. Um, my co-host is not in the studio today or in his home. He is out and he is investigating the issue of um, street traders and how badly they have been treated by the JMPD. And the reason for this is that the JMPD is responsible for issuing them licenses to operate. The problem is that once they do, they still harass them, notwithstanding the existence of the uh, of the licenses. So uh, what Big Daddy Liberty is essentially doing today is speaking to a representative of street traders, and then he's going to tackle Wayne Minar of the JMPD. So that will be available, I'm sure, within the next day or two and should be a lot of fun to to watch. Um, it's, a, it's a vital part of our economy, and it's a part of our economy that has been treated really, really badly. Um, and it's particularly pertinent in this time of COVID when people have to go back to earning a living of, of, to, of, of some kind or the other. So it leaves me to uh, advise and entertain you, and I, I do have a guest who I will introduce at a later stage. At the moment, we're just going to have uh, a look at the first issue of the day, and I, it's not that it's not it's not fresh off the press, but it, it is it is unbelievable, shall we say that? And that is that in her. Court papers against the representatives of the tobacco industry who are trying to seek to unban the, uh, the tobacco ban, Minister Lamini Zuma has essentially argued that the cigarette trade, the illicit cigarette trade, reduces the adverse economic impact of the ban. Now, as my colleague Ivor Fechter argues, that that is true to some extent. Uh, black markets do mitigate the economic impact of a ban, but that's its purpose. And uh, the, the the negatives are far greater. And the first would uh, a thought would have appealed to the government, and that is the fact is that negative, um, non-existent uh, legal sales of of cigarettes do not allow the government to receive tax on cigarette uh, expenditure, and that. Is, is amounts to a few billion each month. It is not insignificant. Um, it, it seems to me absolutely extraordinary. And one of the possible consequences of allowing an illicit in, a industry, which has, has always existed, to really grow and flourish is that people may decide that they are better off buying their cigarettes from the illicit industry and the legal industry will suffer as a result in the long term. And this way you just grow a... A, a, a uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a sense of of unlawfulness, and I really, really cannot see how this can how this can be of benefit to either the purchasers or to the government. But we'll move to our first ad break, and I'll have more when we return. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Let's come back to what for. The IRR is a, is a, is a worrying judgment. And this was the, um, application that the Democratic Alliance took to the High Court in Gauteng 
over the validity of applying BEE or triple BEE uh, restrictions or uh, provisions to people applying for assistance for failing or struggling businesses. The upshot of it was that the court, which is a three-judge court headed by the judge president of the uh, High Court uh, of Gauteng North and South High Courts, uh, judges, uh, judge president uh, Dunstan Malambo. And the reason I'm, cons- I'm one of the reasons I'm concerned is that uh, Judge Malambo is a very robust um, uh, judge, and I've largely agreed with I think almost everything I've heard him that I know of, that he, the judgments that he's given. But in this judgment, um, there seems to be a, a, a transformative reluctance to, to get to grips with the issue, except in the cliché terms which we believe don't offer very much protection at all. What the judgment did was essentially said that the right to, to issue relief based on an assessment of uh, racial criteria is, is valid, and is allowed, but the reason that he, the, the regulations in the case of the small business ministry were, were invalid was because they were vague and unclear and had to be much more precise so that anyone applying for relief had a clear idea of what their likelihood of, was of them achieving such relief. Um, he, he, he said this, he quoted from um, a judgment in Azanian People's Organization and others versus President of the Republic of South Africa and others, a 1966 judgment and a constitutional court judgment. And it said, Generations of children born and yet to be born will suffer the consequences of poverty, of malnutrition, of homelessness, of illiteracy and disempowerment generated and sustained by the institutions of apartheid and its manifest effects on life and living for so many. The country has neither the resources nor the skills to reverse these fully these massive wrongs. It will take many years of strong commitment, sensitivity and labor to reconstruct our society so as to fulfill the legitimate dreams of new generations exposed to real opportunities for advancement denied to preceding generations initially by the execution of apartheid itself and for a long time of its formal demise by its relentless consequence. The resources of the state have to be employed imaginatively, wisely, efficiently and equitably to facilitate the reconstruction process in a manner which best brings relief and hope to the wider sections of the community, developing for the benefit of the entire nation the latent human potential and resources of every person who has directly or indirectly been burdened with the heritage of shame, of the shame and pain of our past. Um, now that, that underlies the sentiment of the entire judgment. And what, what he does is going to go on to say that uh, the geography of our cities remains divided, uh, along racial lines and the, the profound consequences for social distancing in, in townships and clean water and sanitation is a concern. And he's, he's absolutely right in this. Except we take the view that the, the, whatever one's feelings are for or against BE as it currently exists, the, the Disaster Management Act is not the place to apply these requirements. A disaster is distinct and separate from anything else. Uh, and, I can't, and I can't imagine that any disaster that was actually foreseen by the Act, such as a drought or a, or a flood or anything else, would... It's never been uh, relief has never been based on those criteria, which are which are considered first and foremost. And there's something not only morally un, un, 
unattractive about that. But also the fact that when you're asking for disaster relief and you're saying my, my business is failing, help me do something about it, you're not talking about informal business. You're talking about people who have registered with the CIPC, is registered as a taxpayer. So really they're in a, in a more, shall we say, advantaged uh, uh, group in society. And what gets ignored in all of this is the fact that irrespective of the, what the owner has done with regards to BEE, one of the salient things that is forgotten is the fact of that black employees are at risk as, as well as white and any other group of employees if, a, if an organization is at risk in a completely unprecedented, unprecedented situation. So, um, I, I think that's very worrying. I gather the DA is looking to take it on appeal, but I'm not at all sure that it's going to meet with success at a later stage. Um, it can go to the Supreme Court of Appeals and on, then onto on the Constitutional Court. So to the extent where one differs on black economic empowerment or certain aspects of it, the fight to change it has to be made in the public square and in different ways. Um, the Institute has a, very, a, diff- a completely different uh, approach, and we call it EED. Um, the approach essentially that you empower people from the bottom up, and it's really about overcoming all of those, trying to help overcome all of those things this judgment uh, mentions. You aid and you give aid to the poorest first and, and get, give them access to better health, to better education, improve their lives. And, of course, the very big thing which the government – seems completely unable to get to grips with is what what you do is you deal with job creation and job creation doesn't happen in and of itself you don't create jobs and around it sort of business businesses coalesce jobs only exist because businesses are created and those businesses then determine what they need to enhance the existence of their business and provide an income for everyone. And it's on that basis that jobs are created. And it's not cruel or mean. It is how successful countries operate. It is very much a part of the free market environment. And this is something either they don't, the government doesn't want to understand or can't get its head around. But governments are not, as someone called them, I think it was the um, Business Unity South Africa, Governments are not job creation enterprises. They only, they should create the environment for jobs to be created. And that's entirely, entirely a, a recognition that people are entitled to determine their own fate and they are, and as individuals, that it is not for the state to govern their lives other than is, other than is absolutely basic. And particularly the most basic is the provision of safety and security, which will be the discussion we will have with our guest after the next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. To our listeners, I'd like to introduce Gareth Newham. He's the head of justice and, and the justice and violence prevention program at the Institute for Security Studies. Gareth, just give us a little idea, give the listeners a little idea of what the Institute does and what your program specifically does. The Institute for Security Studies uh, works in three areas. We do policy-orientated research, technical assistance, and training, capacity building throughout Africa to improve human security. So we have about 140 staff working from four different regional offices. Our headquarters are in Pretoria, but we also have offices in Kenya, in Ethiopia and Senegal, 
and we have a presence uh, in North Africa and Tunisia. My program I head is called the Justice and Violence Prevention Program that you just mentioned. And most of our work is in South Africa with some projects uh, in other countries such as Namibia. We work in four areas. We focus on tracking and understanding violence and violent crime in South Africa, firstly. Secondly, we look at the response of the criminal justice system to the problems of violence and violent crime. Thirdly, we undertake evidence-based interventions and research into violence prevention programs. In other words, what can you do to stop people from being violent before you need to get the criminal justice system involved? And then fourthly, we do work on corruption mostly. So we look at the state of in South Africa and how, how that's playing out. Um, just a, a first question is, um, how does, how do the other countries in which you, um, uh, in which you operate on, on, in the aspect of justice and violence prevention, how do they measure up to South Africa's terrible rates of crime and violence? Well, it's very difficult to compare, mostly because South Africa um, and Namibia are probably the only two countries that have relatively reliable crime statistics, although they're not yeah. very reliable. So we really have to rely on murder rates because that is probably the most reliable of all statistics that demonstrate what kind of problem you have violence. But even then, in many other countries in Africa, most of the other 54 countries, they do very sporadic assessments on their murder rates. Um, some of them have only last done it over 10 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, 2008. So it's very difficult to do a proper comparison, but generally we, uh, South Africa's um, murder rate is higher than many of those other countries. Um, but people will be interested to know that places like Lesotho have a much higher murder rate than South Africa. So our murder rate is around 35 murders per 100,000, uh, sorry, 38 murders per 100,000 at the moment. Uh, the city is more like 43 murders per 100,000. But um, it's very difficult to do a proper comparison just because of, in many in many countries there just simply isn't a data for us to really do a proper assessment. Okay. And uh, taking murder as, as, an, as an obvious crime because it's, it's, it is so horrendous and the consequences are, are so widespread, um, what sort of understanding do you have of, of murder in South Africa and why it occurs and where it occurs? Well, we know quite a lot about it. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it's not a generally um, random event that is spread equally across South Africa. Most people mm-hmm. probably But what probably people, a lot of people don't know is that half of all our murders take place in only 13% of our policing precincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that about um, 20% of our murders take place in far fewer, about 5, 5%. So half of all the murders take place in 149 police precincts out of the 1,144 precincts. Mm-hmm. And then half of the murder that take place uh, every week occurs on a Friday and Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. So we know that murder is very location-specific, particularly looking at the general picture. It mostly happens between young men who get into mm-hmm. an argument. Uh, the conflict escalates into an assault, which ends in a murder. Most of the young men who are doing this know each other, um, and they've often been drinking alcohol. More than 50% mm-hmm. of murder victims have elevated blood alcohol levels. Um, so bulk of our murder, around maybe 60%, is really described in that way. It's mostly mm-hmm. between people who know each other, we get into an argument. Um mm-hmm. Between two and three thousand women are murdered every year, compared to a much larger number of twenty, ninety to twenty thousand men. So, on the daily average um, of the 
58 murders that take place every day on average in South Africa. Uh, 46 of those are men and eight are women. The remainder are children. Mm. And so it's really a, a social issue of interpersonal violence that drives our very high murder rates. Then, of course, on top of that, we get other factors such as uh, crime, such as armed robberies. Mm-hmm. And that can drive you know, between 15 to 20% of our murders. And then there's intergroup conflicts, taxi violence, um, gang warfare, uh, illegal mining conflicts, um, and those different, and vigilantism, uh, for example, um, all contribute to uh, about 5 to 7% of the murder murders that take place in South Africa. So that's sort of what we know about um, Certainly the sense that, uh, that alcohol plays a major factor and I don't know whether it was just the, the way uh, the press has reported it, but the ban on alcohol during the lockdown, you didn't hear much, if anything, about the murder rate. But once the ban was lifted, I mean, I, I saw a horrific article about, I think it was last weekend or the weekend before in Davidson, there was there were six murders there alone. Um, I know, I, it, I'm sure from the government's point of view, ideally, banning of alcohol would solve a hell of a lot of the problem. But uh, surely this, this isn't actually socially feasible. You can't just take away alcohol and thereby reduce the murder rate. Yeah, that's correct. Look, in the first um, month of lockdown, we were in level five, the first five weeks, murder rate dropped by about 63%. Um, and it's difficult to know what proportion is that of that is solely driven by alcohol because, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of people are murdered in what we call public spaces, um, in and around bars, shabins, taverns, walking um, mm. at night um, from those places to home. So because there was a big, there was a restriction on people's movement, that also played a big role. So certainly there is a link between alcohol abuse and violence, but it's not as simple as that. A lot of people who drink alcohol don't act violently, and um, people who are violent will be violent whether they are drunk or sober. They might be more likely to resort to violence more quickly and become more violent, uh, more extremely violent when they're drunk, but they will still be violent when they're sober. So it has an impact, and you can reduce the levels of violence through um, reducing access of people to alcohol at certain times and spaces, and that has been used quite effectively in different countries around the world. Um, but it is more complex than that. We have, a, we have to look at the problem more holistically. We need to stop. Uh, we need to create a situation in which mostly young men don't feel that the use of violence is the best response to a challenge or a conflict they're facing. And that has to start with the programs that you introduce um, with early childhood development in mm-hmm. primary schools and high schools to change yeah. better attitudes. Yeah, interesting you say that because I mean I I sat on I was on the chair of a governing body at a government school for thirteen odd years, and I did a lot of the serious uh, discipline, you know, the stuff which which had kids expelled, um, and the sense I had was that. If you were going to have any impact on the kids, you had to get them in grade nine, in grade seven and eight, preferably, um, or grade nine maybe. But once you were getting to grade 10, 11, 12, you were going to struggle more because those, those kids were becoming adults and their, their attitudes and behaviors were becoming set. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So the most effective violence reduction programs that have proven to reduce violence behavior um, have been implemented as far back as the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And they start with young children. 
So when we look at why people are violent, and we've done quite a detailed study over three years of repeat violent offenders in some of our maximum security prisons, so people who've been convicted for more than two different violent crimes, often murder, robbery, rape, a very common uh, factor that uh, led to them being violent is adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. So probably neglected or experienced violence in the home, directly or indirectly. In other words, they saw domestic violence taking place. They saw it in their communities, and they were victims of it um, in the communities or school. So the more adverse childhood experiences you have, and there's been detailed studies around the world on this, um, the more of these you have, and there are about nine different types of uh, adverse childhood experiences related to abuse and neglect, the more likely you are to behave violently as a, as a young adult. In fact, it's about 15 to 20 times more likely that a child who's been neglected and abused will be violent compared to, uh, as an adult, compared mm. to a child who has not been neglected and abused in the home. So there's definitely a link there. That's actually quite terrifying in the sense that we know that our social problems, um, particularly in the context of poverty but not exclusively, are so vast um, that and, and require such a, a sort of multifaceted approach that it's simply not a case, just a case of going and say, we can solve, let's go and solve this problem in that way. It's, it's much, much more expansive than that. Can I just ask you then to go on to the uh, criminal justice system? And the obvious question is about the police um, and the deaths that occurred during lockdown. Now, as I understand it, about, if I'm right, and I can't get exact figures, about there were about 13 deaths caused by the police. I think only one, the, 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 the infamous Co- uh, Collins Causa case, was actually caused by the uh, defense, by uh, soldiers in the defense force. What... The general sort of layman sense of that is that the police don't really know how to deal with a situation like a lockdown, even though they have – and they have a, a huge amount of control because people are essentially, uh, for want of a better phrase, are at their mercy. Uh, do, do they not have the skills? Do they not have the training? Or is it was it not as bad as it, as it seemed? Well, it certainly, there was certainly an increase in the police abuses during the lockdown. So detailed statistics were presented by the independent police investigative director to parliament in the 26th of, uh, for the period 26th of March to 5 May. Um, and at that stage, the number of people who had died as a result of police action directly related to lockdown enforcement regulations was 10. Mm-hmm. But the police had also killed 22 other people in other situations that had not been related to the lockdown situation. Most of those, about 60%, would have been uh, police arriving at the scene of a crime and being shot at or believing that their lives were under threat. Um, but there was an overall 35% increase in the total number of complaints against police, mostly for assault. So there were almost 600 assaults um, during that period reported by people against the police and 280 of those were directly related just to lockdown regulations. So the problem of police violence has been with us um, for as long as we've had police. It's not something that started in democracy. Obviously, it was much worse during apartheid, mm. but it's going to go away during democracy, and it's not just an issue of training. It's an organizational cultural thing. Mm. So police agencies uh, that want to reduce the unlawful use of force by their members make accountability for the use of force a priority area. In other words, not only are you trained how and when to use force 
and you only use it in proportion to the objective that you're trying to achieve and the minimal force necessary, and that's the lawful use of force, but you make sure that every single use of force is documented and investigated mm-hmm. and that you start action against problematic officers where you start seeing patterns because there often are patterns. Um, not all police officers use force. Many um, will go through their entire careers without shooting at anybody um, and will be able to plan their engagements with people and respond to people in a way that doesn't require force. They'll de-escalate the situation. But unfortunately, we haven't seen that level of priority given to the use of force in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually seen, we've seen politicians liking to talk tough, mm-hmm. to market themselves as being in a war with people. Um, and that's filtered, that leadership, that political leadership then influences the way in which the organization sees itself. It sees itself as being able to dispense use of force without little accountability for when and how they use force, which is actually the, is actually what's going on. Um, and when you have a situation where police officers know that when they use force, very little is going to happen, even if it's been unlawful. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that will be uh, within their own groups uh, lauded for being violent. Um, mm-hmm. Then you're going to have a big problem. And we have a huge problem with the use of force in South Africa. It's routine, it's just stick, and it's costing the state um, hundreds of millions of rands. So in the last five years, the South African Police Service have had to pay out 1.8 billion rand to the victims who have proven a case in court that they were the um, negatively affected and damaged mm. by police behavior. So it's a huge problem. I mean, certainly the impression one's, one's had is probably since the days of uh, Jackie Salebe, the people as ministers and uh, at, the, at the head of the operational side of the police, politically, uh, they have been pretty much a disaster. There is no sense that there's really been anyone there who's who's really dedicated to making the police service work in the way one would expect to. They don't have the experience. They don't have the knowledge. I don't know if it's the political, um, if it's the political pressure. Am, am I right or, or am, I, am I being sort of overcritical? No, you are right. It was even um, mentioned in the National Development Plan uh, that was adopted by our government in 2012. And there's a particular quote that identifies the serial crisis of top police leadership as being the root of a lot of policing problems, use of force and unlawful use of force just being one of them. And it goes back to an idea of what the police are supposed to be. Uh, if you understand the police as a service, which was the intention of the Constitution uh, calling it a service, then it is there to serve communities, work with communities to improve public safety. And the police don't need to police all 60 million people in South Africa. Mm. They only go and police those individuals that are causing the most harm. So Mm. violent people, people are uh, stealing or committing fraud. But when you see the police as a broad agency to control the population, to generally try and enforce all kinds of laws about everything, Mm. uh, then you run into that trouble. And I think... South African experience has been that not only have we misunderstood what the police are there for, but politically it's been quite popular to talk tough. Mm-hmm. And people, because they're scared of crime, because of our high crime levels, think that they want tough police. So one of the complaints that our politicians will often hear when they go to communities is that the police don't come when they get called, but if they do come, they don't do anything. That when people are arrested, they're back out in the streets. The police aren't tough on crime. Mm. That's because they're scared and they want to see the people that they uh, think are criminals being harshly dealt with. But the public, so the politicians are not just making this up. They're responding to what they believe 
is a, a request from the communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not unique to South Africa, but when you start responding to that request, you end up having a situation where people who shouldn't be brutalized are being brutalized, and brutality becomes a routine way of policing. And this is a big problem in America, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's not something that is only unique to South Africa. We certainly have not had the right political understanding of what the police should be doing, and we certainly have not had the right political leadership for most of the of our democracy in charge of the police, nor have we had the right operational leadership. For um, between 2000, when Jackie Salabi was appointed, and the end mm-hmm. of 2017, 17 years, we did not have a professional police officer running the South African police service. We had politicians running the police service. In other words, the general, who should have had the most experience in policing, had worked his or her way up through the ranks and understood the dynamics and functions of all aspects of policing, so that when they were making decisions, it was based on years of direct experience doing police work in our communities. We didn't have that. We had somebody who was parachuted into the top of organization for political purposes mm. and was able to understand the limitations of policing and what was possible with policing. And that has been a generally disastrous just because the amount of money we're spending on policing is not being effectively used. Currently, the budget is 101 billion rand this year. And it's increased by about 40% over the last five years. But in the last five years, virtually every key indicator of performance has declined. The ability to solve murders has declined by almost 24%. The ability to solve robberies has declined by almost 17%. The ability to hold, to hold disciplinary hearings has dropped by more than half. Well, you name it. You can go into every aspect. Uh, the number of civil claims have been paid out has gone up over 100% in the last five years. So every indicator shows a deteriorating policing system. And there's no plan to stop that. Because right now the people in charge don't have a plan on understanding of where they want to take policing. They're not recognizing that there is a crisis and they're not putting plans in place to stop that crisis from happening and turn things around, which is actually possible. I think one of the things, uh, just to ask you very briefly before we go to an ad break, because I'd like to ask you a few questions afterwards, um, is, is, the same, is the fact that policing, police, to give them the due, they, they can't solve the, the, the problem that causes the crime. They can go some way to, to, uh, to make it less attractive, but they're almost in a situation of um, social workers. They, they, often a lot of the problems that they have to deal with is, is the mediating between uh, arguing parties. You're absolutely right. Um, and that goes back to what I was saying about our, our understanding of what the police are. We shouldn't have lots and lots of police. We should have fewer highly trained police officers that are only responding to very particular sets of conflicts where ordinary citizens cannot respond, or social workers mm-hmm. can't respond. Okay. So in other words, okay. we have a cash in transit house to an armed robbery or something like that. But we actually have ten, you know, 150,000 police officers trying to do everything, and that's why nothing's working. Okay, super. Thanks. Uh, let's, I'd love to ask you some, as I say, some more questions after the break, which we'll take now. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Um, thanks, Gareth. Welcome back. I wanted to just ask you about the. I remember the the when Jackie Salebe dismantled effectively the specialists or the specialized units, and most of us sort of were incredulous because certainly my vague understanding of of effective policing is about under, units understanding specific areas, specific crisis areas, and having intelligence in those areas. One almost got the impression that that's when the the sort of system really started to unravel. 
Yes, so that took place um, in the early 2000s, from about 2004 to 2006. And it was based on the understanding that we, if we had more police, we'd have less crime. And that is a mistake that many countries have made throughout history. And research all shows it doesn't work like that. Um, it's what the police do that it makes a difference, not how many police you have. And at some point, you just have too many police not doing enough. And it's costing you a lot more money than you could be spending in other areas to reduce crime from happening in the first place. But yes, so the problem was that uh, when he became the National Commissioner in 2000, crime had been increasing, or the recorded crime had been increasing for a few years, and was starting to be seen as a problem. And he eventually managed to get the president to lift the moratorium on hiring police officers. So he managed to hire between 2002 and 2012 we had an increase of almost 70,000 people in the South African Police Service. The organization went from 132,000 people to just under 200,000 people in 2012. Um, this mass recruitment meant that the systems for, re- for assessing possible candidates to make sure that only the best people were recruited were not able to cope. So many people got in the police that shouldn't have been there. The training system was only able to really cope with about 3,000 people a year and suddenly had to deal with 7,000. So they're militarized. In other words, they spend more time doing things like marching and discipline than actual proper training on police work. Um, and then and within the police itself, they reduced the training from two years to one year. And so that suddenly police stations started getting large numbers of badly trained, poorly assessed people with firearms um, into their police stations. And then your frontline managers suddenly, where they might have one year been responsible for managing 15 people, a few years later were managing 30 people without any additional support or training themselves. So this massive influx of people um, was built, uh, was based on this idea that if we had lots of police, police officers are visible everywhere in South Africa, crime will go down. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that meant that he neglected the detective services, the intelligence capacity. You actually wanted the detectives to be wearing uniforms and be assisting in roadblocks, that kind of thing. And that's why he dismantled the specialized units. There were also good reasons for dismantling some of the specialized units. Some of them were corrupt. Some of them were not really doing anything. There's no duplication. But basically, there was a wholesale dismantling of around 500 different specialized units to this generalized notion of policing, visible policing. And as you say, it's not something that you can do generally. It's a very, it requires very specialist skills and experience. And so rather have far more detectives and far more intelligence <coughs> operatives that can guide your interventions policing where it's needed than have very weak intelligence and very weak investigating capacity, but tens of thousands of visible policing um, that stops being a deterrent because of various corrupt, uh, issues like corruption and uh, because of uh, police, uh, criminals being able to adjust their modus operandi as they, they, they watch what the police are doing. So it, it is about, again, the, the vision of policing and understanding what you need to do with your police. Because it's not that we don't have very good police officers. We've got excellent police officials. I've been fortunate to work with many of them over the last 20 years or so. We've got very good police commanders. We've probably got some of the best police officers in the world, given the experience they've had. Um, but unfortunately, there's not a, a vision and an approach to make sure that we only have the best in our police. It's been seen as a kind of an employment agency to get lots of people into jobs. And now we're stuck with a situation where it's very unwieldy and it's not performing the way that it should be. Um, Gareth... Perhaps my final question would be the the value or otherwise of uh, intelligence and informers. Could you comment on on that aspect of policing? Intelligence is probably the most important function of policing. Because as I said, 
you're never going to have a police officer on every single corner in South Africa or being able to go everywhere. So there's always going to be a limited resource policing. It's expensive. It's difficult to, to manage. So what you really want is to have a smaller, highly trained professional force or service um, that is only responding where it's needed and effectively responding. And that's what intelligence does. So we've got around 9,000 people working in our intelligence division in South African Peace Service, and their budget's around 3.5 billion rand a year. And those people are really should be the kind of radar or the eyes of the police. In other words, they should be looking at all the information they can get, whether it's from informers, which is one kind of information, from open source data, from the crime statistics, um, from networks of people. And then they start identifying who is committing most of the crimes and where and what can we do about it. So... We do actually have it in terms of resource, the resources and numbers, and they're also very good intelligence people. If it was recognized that this is the, and it has been recognized, I must say, in the last couple of years, the new National Visual Commissioner, um, Peter Jacobs, has been slowly working behind the scenes trying to fix crime intelligence, and he certainly understands the importance of this. So there's, there's some good news there. But it is actually, uh, without intelligence, you're policing blind, as some, some people say. Because you, as, you, as I said earlier, you don't want, you don't need to police everybody. You need to police maybe the five to ten percent of people who are actually causing most of the problems. And that that surely particularly pertain to areas that can afford private security. Um, they must surely be taking some 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 load off the police. Yes, you know it's, a, it's an interesting question because it's more of a, a deterrence, and mm. um, you know, so what happens is in areas. But even there, even in areas with high levels of private security, you still have very high levels of house robberies and car hijackings and business robberies mm. um, because they seem to go in hand in hand. So the criminals who are in the networks that commit most armed robberies of, of uh, such as hijackings or, or house and home invasions or business robberies um, are relatively organized. And so they're targeting areas where there's wealth. And in those areas, and there could be Sandton, middle or, or relatively affluent suburbs, there's often a very high level of private security, but private security can only do so much, and criminal gangs who are targeting these areas make it, they use their own intelligence. They might even have connections within the private security industry, or they spend a lot of time watching how the private security industry works in an area so that they can go and hit a target and leave without being stopped. So private security does play a role, but it's not the solution, because the only way you stop gangs of armed robbers once people have taken that route as a way of making money, they don't stop until they, one of two things pretty much happens to them, mostly. They either get killed or they get in, uh, jail. Um, mm-hmm. because it's a very high risk but very high reward crime. And interestingly enough, very few people actually do it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a relatively small number of people who commit the vast majority of these crimes. And unfortunately, it is a crime, while it is a crime that the police should certainly be able to reduce, and in many countries around the world they have, and even in Gauteng between 2009 and 2011 with a very specific strategy, they did get it down dramatically. Um, since 2012, we've seen about a 40% increase in armed attacks around the country. So they're not getting on top of that crime. Again, that's because of um, a failure of intelligence and inadequate investigation capacity. Um, Gareth, thank you very, very much for what I think has been incredibly illuminating for the audience um, and perhaps done away with some of the uh, misconceptions about uh, uh, crime and policing in this country. Is there somewhere they can get hold of you if they want to read or find out more or get in touch with you? Is there a link? Yeah, sure. Um, You can just Google ISS Africa and you're taken to our website. 
Um, and if you want to get hold of me, you can you go to uh, About Us and you'll see my picture comes up and you can either click on that or it's genuine at issafrica.org. O-R-G. Thank you, Gareth, once again. And uh, before we wrap up, let's go to our last ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Right, and to really um, wrap up, we're just going to look at some things you need that we'll be looking at for the next uh, week or so. And obviously the first thing is going to be tomorrow's supplementary budget by uh, Minister Tito Mboweni. I think the only thing we can be sure in advance of the budget is that um, we are relying on hope over experience. We are likely to be disappointed, not so much because of Minister Mboweni, but of the political uh, machinations and pressures around him to do the wrong thing while he's trying to get the country to do the right thing. And given the terrible state of our economy at the current time, um, he, he has very little room to move. And, and certainly from the point of reloc- reallocating some of the budget in, one, in some areas to other areas, um, it can only end up in a fight. And we already have the, the idea that COSATU, as one of the alliance partners, is going to – is already pushing for – what's both unimaginable and unaffordable. So anyway, let's wait tomorrow afternoon and see, and there'll be much dissection of that, I can imagine. Um, The other thing to watch is um, Jacob Zuma's uh, continuing heroics in trying to now have the judge who's meant to hear his case recuse himself or not be appointed or whatever whatever line they're taking on the basis that the judge had a private conversation with the lead prosecutor, which was improper. Um, now, obviously, it's, it's very difficult to, to judge that at the moment in terms of the fact, but the prosecution service, the NPA, has certainly said there's absolutely no basis to this accusation. But And if that's true, then I suppose what we're really seeing is vintage, vintage Zuma being vintage Zuma. And um, um, that's uh, <laughs> what, what, what else could we come to expect? It's, it's uh, Zuma court time, so we're going to see ducking, diving, jumping and weaving and wailing. So uh, there will be much more, but uh, that's as the, uh, as, as the week progresses. Thank you very, very much for joining me. And if you want to read more of what The Daily Friend, our online portal, has to say, please just go to dailyfriend.co.za where we have opinions, news items, um, podcasts of various kinds, and we really bring you the news and the information from a liberal perspective that you're not getting elsewhere. If you want to join, become a member of the IRR, please go to irr.org.za and you will find the join us button as you enter. Thank you very, very much for joining us and we'll see you again next week.